they can get a cheerleader a lot cheaper than me. All I'm looking for in deposition of the defendant is what it is I want to start my case with. It isn't about your war with that lawyer. It's about your war with injustice and your war for justice. And I'd say don't be worried about how you can maximize your fee in any one given deal. Think about your reputation long term. This is Wisdom on Trial, impacting your life and law practice. Is it evening or morning or afternoon for you? Uh, it's evening. It's uh, 5 p.m. in London. Uh, in a nice, uh, yeah, it's a bright day here in London, but it's 5 p.m. You look energetic for it being the end of your day. Yeah, well, I, I think this is uh, par for the course in, in, in what I do. Uh, so I just had a, another uh, online session with with another group, and so uh, I'm I'm wide awake. And I've had uh, my second uh, flat white, so I'm ready to go. I want to start with possibly uh, one of the coolest first names that I've heard in a long time. Tell us, where does the name Nero come from? Uh, sure, uh, David. So my full name is Nero Shan. Um, uh, it, it doesn't mean anything like there's no sort of significance or, you know, in Sanskrit, it means something or anything like that. It's uh, something my mom uh, liked. Uh, my grandma really liked the shortened version of it, Nero. Um, and that is essentially uh, uh, stuck. Um, and it's been Nero ever since. Uh, even professionally, most people know me as Nero. My academic articles are, are Nero. Uh, so once in a while, it catches people off guard when they see my passport or some other legal document. And, uh, and they realize there's a few additional letters after the O. It would, uh, it would be a, a great sports name, Nero, you know? That's right. Yeah, yeah. It, it rhymes with, I guess it, as I said, it rhymes with hero, uh, although my son, who's 10 and, and, and a bit uh, uh, cheeky, also said it also rhymes with zero. So, uh, <laughs> so it depends on the day. There's certain days uh, it's the former and other days perhaps the latter. That's a, that's dangerous cheekiness for a 10-year-old. I can't imagine that at 19. Uh, yeah, well, it, it uh, good thing I teach influence and negotiations, although the, the ability uh, and, and its utility seems to be dwindling as he's getting older. Well, uh, nothing paralyzes me more quickly than trying to parent and nothing humbles me more quickly. And honestly, no area for more growth character wise for me than parenting. It's it's I love it. And it's also it, it 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 exposes my greatest weaknesses. Oh yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I, I think you 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 hit it uh, head on. It's um, uh, it certainly teaches you patience. Uh, I'm, I'm not a typically a patient individual, but uh, and and certainly, as you said, exposes all the weaknesses and all the areas of growth. Uh, it's a incredibly uh, an amazing. It's the hardest thing I've ever done, but it's also are uh, uh, perhaps the most rewarding one. Yeah, I agree. Well, you said I'm not typically uh, the most patient individual, but your academic background, beginning with an undergraduate degree in psychology and a master's in organizational behavior, and then a PhD at Northwestern Kellogg, uh, how does the impatience navigate those uh, academic halls? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a good question. Certainly you've done your background. Um, 
Yeah, I, I guess it depends on the domain where I'm impatient. Um, I think when it comes to sort of reading and consuming um, information, clearly I could I could talk about those for uh, hours on end or till the cows come home. Um, yeah, it um, you know I, I became sort of as just as a backdrop. My as you said, my undergrad was in psychology, but that that wasn't the initial starting point. It was actually life sciences. So, as you could tell from uh, my name and obviously on the video, I'm sort of South Asian, um, and obviously with every sort of South Asian parent, uh, it's like medicine or engineering. Uh, so I sort of said, okay, yeah, I could sort of do medicine. I was, did pretty well in biology, um, showed up in undergrad, and then very quickly biochem just sort of beat me down. <laughs> and it was very clear I didn't really have a future there. And, and one of the courses I took uh, in undergrad was Psych 100 and became really kind of fascinated by it. But <clears throat> independent of that, I read uh, a book by Oliver Sacks. I don't know if uh, you're aware of him, but um, this great uh, uh, neurosurgeon, broadly neuroscientist, uh, has written phenomenal, phenomenal books. And the book that I read was a book called uh, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. And it's all these sort of mental quirks that people had. And it was a patient who couldn't re- distinguish between his wife and a hat. And, and, and he goes through various other sort of mental sort of quirks that they had, which gave you a glimpse into kind of like this magical world of the brain and, and sort of fascinating aspects. So he has another book called uh, Awakening, which was uh, made into a movie with Robert De Niro and um, and Robin Williams. Uh, it's a phenomenal movie, uh, if you haven't seen it. Uh, and, and, and Oliver Sacks has written lots of other books. But anyhow, uh, the book that, that I referenced just kind of captivated sort of this whole area of psychology. And so switched from sort of life sciences into psychology and, and within it sort of social psychology, which is sort of how does the social environment impact our judgments, decisions and behavior and kind of never looked back. So I did an undergrad in psychology. Uh, then, uh, in, in addition to sort of social psych, I wanted to sort of kind of take a more uh, applied bend, and that's when I sort of moved into a business school and 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 looked at sort of social psychology within organizations, or the field more broadly is called OB, which stands for organizational behavior, uh, not to be confused with BO, which is very different, um, and uh, and it basically sort of delves into social psych or draws on social psych to inform people's behavior within organizations. So such things as leadership, decision-making, et cetera, falls into OB. And then while I was doing that, became really interested in decision-making and sort of all these quirks and biases that we fall victim to, which I think is what we're gonna really sort of uh, dive into. Um, and, and Northwestern and Kellogg was a kind of an epicenter for uh, some amazing faculty that were there. Uh, my advisor was Keith Munnion, was really interested um, and, and worked with economists and, and, and psychologists around decision-making and judgment. And, and that became kind of the, the topic that I became really fascinated by. And uh, my other other uh, uh, mentor was Adam Galinsky, who was doing stuff around sort of status and power. Uh, and those two kind of really sort of had a had a uh, imprint, if you will, in the types of questions I asked. And um, and here we are, twelve years later, uh, now a faculty at at, at LBS, and uh, and in a, uh, uh, yeah, and that's how sort of I don't know if it was patience as much as not wanting to enter the real world, as they say, uh, and and just decided to sort of go down the academic path. Uh, but uh, it's 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 been a blast.
I'm 100% committed that I'm also going to cover doubling down on failing strategies, your, your, your research on that in terms of uh, the escalation of commitment. I, I just, I, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the, uh, the first offer effect in negotiation. I also want to talk about uh, the role of stress in the interactive effect of power and stability on risk-taking, but uh, you have to go with the most obvious area in it's uh, how I connected to you, which is uh, I, I briefly shared it by email. I'm sitting at my office. I have a friend of mine. He's one of my mentors. I met him when I was in college. I was a mailboy who would carry boxes at his law firm, and now he's retired. And he sends me interesting things from time to time. And one day I open up my email and he he sends your TED Talk and it says, I don't really have the energy to understand this, but I think you're going to enjoy it. <laughs> so I did that in 2019. And so I didn't know this, but what TED does, which is sort of the, the main body is they go through every year the various hundreds, if not thousands of TEDx talks, and they pick out one or two talks that they think should be promoted to the main stage TED. So it's like, I don't know, someone said less than 5%, less than 2%. And so a couple of months ago, they said, hey, uh, the TED steering committee has decided to use uh, promote this talk to the main stage TED. And of course, um, was was posted back in January and it's just been phenomenal just the outreach I think I mean can we call it viral is viral a reasonable yeah so I've, I've gotten some feedback that it's I think for the last few weeks it's been in the top 10 um, uh, and you know it was I think the first few days it was slow and I thought I really hope more than my dad and my wife and kids watch this uh, and then within a week it just sort of took off and I think it hit about a million views in the first three weeks and it's now, uh, I've been told it'll hit 2 million in the, in the next month or so. If you could summarize, and, and don't worry about the TED Talk for anyone that wants to watch the TED Talk, I encourage you to, literally, all you need to do is Google TED Talk Nero, N-I-R-O, and you'll find it. And it's worthy of watching. It's it's about 11 minutes, and it's uh, it's excellent. So the uh, the TED Talk is on a uh, broad sort of cognitive quirk, which is referred to as the argument dilution effect. Right? It's a it's 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 a lot of words, but but fundamentally, the idea here is David that um, oftentimes when we try to convince someone or persuade someone, uh, and then the more more sort of rational approach is to argue for why you believe in X, Y, or Z, is to give arguments for why you believe in X, right? So whether it be for the, for the lawyers on uh, listening to this briefs or various other, you know, litigation, et cetera, is to give reasons for why someone is um, guilty or not guilty, et cetera. And the argument dilution effect is this idea that whenever we're processing information with any sort of communication, there's sort of diagnostic information and non-diagnostic information. And the, the, the initial idea of an argument dilution effect is that when you include non-diagnostic information, it dilutes away from the strength of the diagnostic information, which then limits or lowers the value of your speech, right? So, um, and so I, I realize that still sounds fairly technical, so let me sort of break it down uh, further. 
And here the argument, in fact, let me walk you through an example. So, David, you said you are uh, in Florida. So I presume you're either a baseball fan, football fan, any sport that you follow or hockey. As a Canadian, you might even follow hockey and I could maybe speak more about hockey. Golf. Let's do golf. Golf. Okay, that's fine. So, uh, so David, who is your uh, who is your favorite golf player? Who do you think is the best golfer to ever play the game? I mean, Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods. Okay, right. So, uh, so not Jack Nicholson. So Tiger Woods. All right, fine. So, da- so let's assume, David, you're going to um, try and convince me that Tiger Woods is the best golfer to ever play the game of golf. And let's assume you've come up with four reasons or four arguments for why Tiger Woods is the best golfer. And let's assume of those four reasons, two of those are very strong and worth 90 points out of 100. And the other two are still strong, but not as strong as the first two and only worth 60 points out of 100 in terms of argument strength. Now, a common thought process communicators and others make is to think, look, I've got four great arguments. Granted, two of them are very strong, but the other two are still strong. Let me put it all on the table as a way to convince Nero and others that Tiger Woods is the best golfer um, to ever play the game of golf. The calculus that you're making is that the strength of that argument is 300 points, right? 90 plus 90 plus 60 plus 60. Turns out, however, receivers of information don't engage in an additive function. They engage in an averaging function. So when you say Tiger Woods is the best golfer for reasons one, two, three, four, I say, great. I add it up to 300, divide by four, and the strength of that argument is 75 points, not 300. Now, if you want to be more persuasive or more influential, you'd be far better off to say, Nero, Tiger Woods is the best golfer to ever play the game because of reason one, reason two, stop. Now I hear 90 plus 90, which adds up to 180, divide by two. Strength of that argument is 90 points, not 75. And so the idea of the argument dilution effect is that the strength of any argument that you make is only as strong as its weakest link. And the idea here is that whenever you're trying to be convincing or when you're trying to influence uh, or whenever you're trying to communicate for the purpose of influence, stick to your strong arguments, right? Because list you cannot make up for the strength of an argument by increasing the quantity of your arguments. And that's, if you will, kind of the broader picture of the argument dilution effect. So, so you're in good company uh, with a local federal judge named uh, Skip Dalton. And then I don't know how familiar you are with the judiciary in, in the United States, but federal judges are they're they're kind of an elite a little it's a it's a very high appointment uh federally and when i had judge dalton on the podcast and we talked about uh writing and his recommendations for writing he literally was talking about this same concept uh he wasn't basing it upon university of chicago research like you did but he was basing it upon his views as a judge that when people uh load on argument after argument after argument after argument, it actually dilutes the effectiveness of their cause rather than just focusing on the strongest, best points. Right. And and I think this this is a common error people make. People sort of equate quantity to being more influential. And that just 
categorically is, is not the case. The number of presentations I've sat through where invariably I'll come across a slide that says, here are the 15 reasons to launch this product, or here are the 10 reasons why uh, we need to enter that market, right? Guess what happens when you get to reasons 13, 14, and 15? Those reasons take away or dilute away from your very strong arguments. Um, and sometimes I think we do this because, in essence, really, if I were to be blunt, we're a bit lazy, right? It is much easier just to list all your arguments than to sit back and think, what are the strong reasons that, you know, I would do X? And, and that's not to say that you shouldn't think of those reasons, but put them to in your appendices. They could be offline conversations, but they should never, ever be the central element of your discourse. Um, I, I would say, so I teach influence, I teach these various quirks and sort of how these quirks impact your ability to be a better communicator. This is one of like 10 different cognitive quirks. Um, and this is without a doubt the most common error that I see individuals make across different industries, across tenure, easily the biggest mistake leaders make, um, which is they, uh, they fall victim to the argument dilution effect. And so to get practical, I'd love for you to share uh, about the research of uh, pharmaceutical warning labels, because as a trial lawyer uh, and very aware of uh, warning labels on medications, I found your study fascinating. Right. So um, the, uh, the the study you're referring to, right, as you know, uh, there are only two countries, now maybe three uh, pharmaceutical companies to directly market to consumers. It's the U.S., New Zealand, and I think I've been just recently told mainland China. These are what are referred to as DTC ads or direct-to-consumer ads, right? So when I used to live in Chicago or Ithaca, you couldn't get through 30 minutes of television without running into one of these ads, right? Usually it is a, 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 a young couple sort of dancing through their gardens or running with their uh, beautiful dog because they got a full night's sleep because they took the sleep drug the night before. Uh, and because of FDA regulations, um, you need to spend the last 30 seconds of that one minute ad needs to be devoted to the side effects of that drug. And the rationale was if you're gonna advertise the benefits, you also need to advertise the potential side effects of that drug. And so you, you know the typical architecture, you'll hear a voiceover. It's actually a hurried voiceover that says side effects are heart attack, stroke, blah, 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 blah. And it'll be like itchy feet, sweaty palms, et cetera. And, the, and, and so the, the question we start asking is, look, in, in a plethora of these side effects, some that are very serious and others that are minor, do you also get the argument dilution effect, which is do the, the itchy feet and the sweaty palms take away from the real risk effects of heart attack and stroke, right? And so imagine an alternate drug that says, you know, this drug cures your sleep problems, side effects are heart attack and stroke. Now, all of a sudden you're thinking, you know, I perhaps don't really need this drug, right? Or, you know, I really also want to wake up the next morning, et cetera. And so that's what we found, David, is, is a, bunch of these studies that we ran both as print ads uh, for, you know, um, you know, drugs that are out there. Uh, so we took a sleep drug, we took out some of the minor side effects and uh, had another condition where it was the full side effects listed. People who read the uh, original ad that had the strong side effects and the weak side effects rated the drug to be overall less, less risky 
they thought the drug was more effective. And on, in one of the studies, they were willing to spend more per pill to uh, buy that drug. Uh, all as a result of the argument dilution effect. In fact, we even took one drug for depression. I think it was 78 seconds long. We literally just spliced out four seconds. And the four seconds were something like headache, nausea, et cetera, in a sea of other more serious things like uh, suicide, heart attack, et cetera. Uh, and it was a modification of less, you know, about 4% is, is the real modification. And when we, when we had individuals and consumers listen to it, when you spice out the weak uh, side effects, people rate that drug to have more severe side effects than when all side effects are listed. And so what this kind of highlighted was, you know, even not just with regards to influence, but even risk factors or negative elements, the argument dilution plays a, plays a role, which is uh, when you list all side effects, both weak and strong, paradoxically, it makes consumers think the drug is less risky, they evaluate it to be more effective and willing to spend more to consume that drug, all as a result of the argument dilution effect. I mean, it, it seems, and I want to talk about the effect on advocacy and communication, but but I can't leave the FDA point. It seems almost like in your study, looking at uh, the University of Chicago studies on the dilution effect, that if the goal of the FDA warning on the commercial is to actually warn of the most serious side effects, we, we need to shift the focus so that we're sure that we're not diluting the message by including 10 things and instead really being sure we're including the most significant things that would really guide a consumer's decision. That's right. Yeah. And so the FDA's impetus, if you will, was to sort of warn uh, individuals. It was to limit pharmaceutical uh, companies sort of influence over potential consumers. Right. So this I think the DTC industry is something like a five point two billion dollar industry. Um, and, and there's lots been written about the fact that, you know, you're watching Seinfeld. Uh, for those 30 minutes, you come across these ads the next morning, you're like, you know what, that's the drug I need to cure, I don't know, some disease. Then you, next time you're at the doctor's office, what you do is you actually ask for drugs. So what, ha- what these, these DTC ads have done is cause patients to shop for the right drug, which is really not what you want to be doing. But this is kind of almost this unintended consequence of this FDA regulation, which is by listing all side effects, it in fact kind of makes it easier um, for individuals or for pharmaceutical companies to market these drugs because people evaluate the risk factor to be lower. But it's not just, um, you know, pharmaceutical ads. I mean, you could think of the uh, the application of this, David, to even, you know, a uh, let's imagine a poster for uh, trying to get people to smoke less. And, and we've, we've seen this in a couple of studies where, you know, one poster says, you know, it can be a major cause of stroke, it's addictive, uh, reduces stamina, heart attacks, et cetera, but also some weaker ones like wrinkles your skin um, and, you know. Uh, gives you uh, bad breath, gives you bad breath. Bad breath, yellowing of your teeth, whatever it might be. And what we found is that when you show both of those posters, one that lists, a plethora of side effects, both strong and weak, and then ones that just focus uh, on the really strong ones, people rate their their tendency to want to quit smoking to be greater when only the strong side effects are listed, right? Even though the poster only has two side effects, but they're very strong versus one that has 
10 side effects, but a mixture of strong and weak, right? So this has implications for lots of domains. I mean, even though we focused on the pharma because it has very important policy implications in the US and other places where they use DTC, but you know, this plays out in lots of industries. Um, and one of the areas where uh, I've started sort of not necessarily uh, early stages of a research is so here in the US, sorry, in the UK, um, if you take a financial instrument, you get what's called a key facts indicator um, or key facts document, which lists sort of the potential risk factors with that financial product, right? So let's assume you took out a variable rate mortgage. It'll say things like, uh, you know, if the Bank of England rate goes up by 0.25 beeps, it doesn't have a linear impact on your monthly payments, but it has an exponential impact, right? Which most people don't really kind of make that 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 judgment. But it also has things like if you lose your job, you have less money to pay your mortgage. That seems fairly self-explanatory. So it turns out even with financial instruments, if you list sort of really strong risk factors with weak risk factors, people rate that financial product to be overall less risky than if you just focus on the really strong ones, right? One of the things that you have said is that to focus on the most important things and not fall victim to the dilution effect takes courage. Why does it take courage? So, look, I mean, we've we've all done these presentations where it takes courage where your PowerPoint slide has two bullet points as to why, you know, they should hire you, David, to represent them in the, in, in a case, right? Uh, right. It could be the years of experience, uh, the, the number of cases, the amount of money that you've sort of uh, uh, been able to get for your plaintiff, et cetera. And so I see this, especially with professional services firms, where they'll list, you know, all the reasons why they should choose X over another professional service firms. And they'll start out with, you know, our partners have, you know, 40 years of experience in oil and gas. Here's the amount of money we've saved in digital transformation projects. But then next, you know, it starts sort of going down to the point where it'll say, you know, we work well as a team, et cetera. Okay, well, that's wonderful that you work well as a team, but that's not really relevant to the client. And I think what oftentimes occurs is you think, well, that might be important to someone on the other side. Let's put it out there. And so it takes courage to sort of slice things off and knock those things out and say, you know, there's a plethora of reasons why you should hire David as your representative. But as I see it here, are the two fundamental reasons where you move forward with David. And, and it takes courage to kind of sit back and think, you know, what might be the two reasons that sets me apart from someone else? Or what might be the two reasons why this product is better than the rest? So it, it takes both um, uh, time, effort, and courage. But in the end, it will make you a far more persuasive and more influential communicator to stick to your strong arguments. I mean, it's, it's a, it, of, of the biases that I cover that impact influence, this is perhaps the easiest one to fix, which is stick to your strong arguments. And it's hard. It, it, I mean, I sometimes fall victim to it as well, where I think, oh, I've got this one more point that I want to write down in my paper because I think it makes my paper stronger. Um, and, and, and I'm falling victim to the very bias that I'm sort of professing here, which is stick to your strong arguments. And I think sometimes people do that because they also want to signal that you're you're an incredibly thoughtful litigator or you're a thoughtful communicator. You've thought about all factors. 
I think you could still do that, which is to say, look, you can look at the appendices. There are 15 reasons why there's a problem here. But as I see it, and the two problems that you should really focus on are X and Y, right? And the thing is, you could, you could, you could have those reasons, but the, the central discourse or the central piece of communication needs to stick to the strong, strong argument. My sense is what pharmaceutical drugs companies would have done is they do lots of test audiences and they would have realized, wait a second, the more side effects we list, they actually like our commercial. They might not know sort of the science behind it. The FDA is asking us to do it. Let's do it. I don't know a priori whether they knew it or not. And I certainly don't want to open up any litigation against me, in which case you will be representing me by, <laughs> by the end of it. You- uh, yeah, but um yeah, but, but this stuff, you know, not just in litigation, as I said, there's so many other biases. This happened to be one of them that I focused on. There's others uh, that have all sorts of implications for communication and, and certainly for uh, litigation. Um, and, and one of the other ones that, that I love, uh, I mean, it's not in the, in the research paper, but certainly comes up in my teaching, is this idea of um, the availability heuristic. Right. So this so these are all, you know, in the broad scheme, bunch of biases that owe their lineage to one Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky. So Kahneman and Tversky were um, two, two psychologists who discovered all the ways in which we make um, systematically biased decisions. Right. So in our pursuit to make sound, rational decisions, we rely on all sorts of shortcuts and heuristics that causes our decisions to deviate from being both sound and rational. Uh, escalation of commitment that you mentioned earlier is another bias. Uh, but one of them is this idea of the availability heuristic. And so let me give you an example of how this sort of uh, plays out. So one of the questions that sometimes I ask my students is I ask them in a 2000 word manuscript, how many words would you expect to find that have the form ING? So seven letter words then end in ING. And to the other half of the class, I would say uh, 2000 word manuscript, seven letters, where uh, the sixth letter is the letter N. And so when you give those two questions, for the ING, on average, about, let's say, 80% believe there are 16 plus words. And then only about 20% believe there are 16 plus words that are seven letters and has the letter N in the sixth position. Now, this statistically is not possible, right? Because seven letter words that end in ING, the letter in the sixth position is N which means every seven letter word that has a letter N in the sixth position includes every single seven letter word that has ING and then some. And the reason this bias occurs is when you're given that question, you're trying to go back in memory and come up with seven letter words that end in ING or seven letter words that have the letter N in the sixth position. Which one is easier? The ING. And, and the bias occurs because you erroneously correlate ease of access of information to frequency of occurrence in the real world. Just because information is more easily recalled, more easily brought online, you give that information far greater weight or confidence in the judgments and decisions that you make, hence referred to as the availability heuristic. Or another one that, that comes up is, you know, which causes more deaths, shark attacks or falling airplane parts? Turns out, your likelihood of dying from a falling airplane part, I think is about 30 times greater than a shark attack. But everyone says shark attack because they've seen Jaws, they've seen, you know, especially, I mean, living in Florida, right? So you've heard, uh, you know, you probably could have substituted that with crocodiles attacks or whatever it might be. Yes, yes. And, 
And because one is more easily memorable, you you give that information greater weight. And where that plays out in, I guess, litigation and certainly in the courtrooms is this idea that stories are far more influential than numbers. And so oftentimes when we try to persuade people, we love giving data, lots of data, lots of analytics, et cetera. And one of the things I highlight to people is that if you want your numbers to be impactful or to influence individuals, look for ways to wrap those stories around a number. Sorry, to wrap those numbers around a story, right? Stories help people remember numbers. Numbers never help people remember stories. And oftentimes, why is that? that? Because stories have a much longer shelf life in our memory structure than do numbers, right? So we just stories just are more sticky. And in fact, one of the the great studies that sort of highlights this this idea is so this was with uh, jurors. Jurors heard an eyewitness's testimony of someone who was on trial for drinking and driving. So one set of jurors heard uh, an eyewitness say, yes, I saw this individual at a party. They stumbled across the room, stumbled into the coffee table, stumbled to the front door, hit their head on the front door, stumbled to their car, got in and drove away. Another set of jurors hears the eyewitness say, yes, I saw this individual at a party. They stumbled across the room, stumbled into the coffee table, spilling the bowl of guacamole onto the white carpet, trampled through the white carpet, stumbled to the front door, hit their head on the front door, crawled to their car, got in and drove away. So one set of jurors hears a more um, sort of a vanilla, placid account of what they saw. And another set of jurors hears a more vivid and slightly more emotional account of what they saw. When you pull the jurors right after hearing both of those eyewitness, both sets of jurors are just as likely to find the defendant guilty. However, if you pull the jurors, I think it was like four weeks later, and you ask them to pass a guilty verdict, the group that heard the more vivid emotional account were six times more likely to find the defendant guilty. Why? Vivid emotional stories last much, much longer in our memory structure than non-vivid stories or far more relevant to kind of our everyday life. Stories last much longer in our memory structure than do numbers, data, or analytics, right? So oftentimes when you're trying to convince someone and you're presenting data, if you want your numbers and your ideas and your rationality to be sticky, one of the best ways to do that is to wrap it around a story or an image. Like a Red Cross commercial is is 30 seconds. One option is to give you all the data on the number of children who go malnutrition in a given year. They don't do that. What do they do? They tell you the story in the life of one child, the struggle that one child goes through to get a clean glass of water or a plate of meal or a plate of food. Why? Because eight months later, you don't remember all the statistics. But what you do remember very vividly is the perils of that one child to secure a clean glass of water. That story then triggers you to give money or uh, you know, the one that is now almost comical now is, um, you know, presidential debates or debates here with prime ministers, etc. It used to be about 20 years ago, if you asked a candidate about, you know, what are your thoughts on unemployment, you would have heard, you know, unemployment uh, when I took over office was 9.1, over the last three quarters has been 8.4, future projections are for 7.6. Now in debates, if you get that same question, the typical answer is to say, David, thank you so much for asking this question. Just last week, I was in Austin, Texas. I met Martha. Does that really work? Is it ultimately? It does. 
It does. And that's the sad part is that stories just are far more influential. And, you know, there's lots of now um, around sort of, you know, fake news. And why does fake news and certain things? Because they have this vivid, powerful story that captures people, that's sent over. And then very quickly, people remember stories and, and they just stick much longer. I mean, there's the old one about sort of, you know, you wake up in a in a tub and your kidneys are missing. It was a one fake story that just sort of captured people's imagination. And now everyone thinks that that happens on a regular basis. And it, and it doesn't. Um, I, I mean, you'll love, you'll love this one, especially with the availability heuristic. And the reason I, 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 I'm talking about this, I struggle with it. I, I live and die with numbers and data. But even I know that, you know, when I want to sort of communicate that data, if I don't wrap it around a story or an image, it just doesn't have the same impact. So uh, I think in October was the 25th anniversary of the O.J. Simpson trial. Uh, I, uh, or maybe the verdict came out then or whatever it was. And they brought back all 12 jurors uh, and asked them to uh, recall various moments in the trial that was memorable, right? 25 years later, what do you remember of the O.J. Simpson case, right? Even I remember, I remember, I think it was, what, 94? And I remember being distinctively at one of my uh, my parents' friends' place. We were, I don't know, playing video games or whatever. And then it was, all came to a crashing halt because everyone wanted to watch the um, the Ford Bronco chase. And that's it. It was just a white Bronco down the highway. Um, and so anyhow, in October, when they brought back the 12 jurors, they asked them, you know, what are the um, things that you most remember, the, the most memorable thing in the entire um, litigation, which lasted, what, four months, five months, six months? So the, do you want to take a guess what every single juror uh, categorically said their most memorable moment was? I'm going to guess uh, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. Exactly. It is the one thing that every juror mentioned was their most memorable moment, which was that O.J. Simpson trying on the glove, it not fitting. And uh, what's his name? Johnny Cochran saying, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. There were months of data, eyewitness, DNA evidence, you know, all of that stuff. Yet the one thing that was sticky and memorable and has lasted over the 25 years is if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. And and and, and credit to uh, Johnny Cochran, it was also a, a statement that you can remember, right? If the glove don't fit, you it rhymes. And there's another, not a bias, but a quirk that's referred to as uh, fluency. So we remember things that are easier to recall or, or are fluent in our language, right? So fluency results in more memory. We recall it better. And they've even shown it with... Um, IPOs and stocks. So imagine a stock uh, ticker symbol that is uh, MAN versus MNX. MAN is fluent, man, it's MNX isn't, doesn't have fluency. And what, what they've shown is that MAN 52 weeks later, a few weeks later, trades at a higher value than a stalker, a, a stalker symbol that's MNX. All else being equal, people prefer MAN stock to MNX stock. Um, and so the very fact that he sort of said, you know, he could have said, look, if the glove doesn't fit, you need to consider blah, blah, blah. But no, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. I want to be sure that I, I tag some, uh, spend a little time in negotiations because uh, a lot of what uh, trial lawyers do is they spend time negotiating. Um, 
uh, and the consequences matter. Um, but honestly, we negotiate in life all the time. Pivoting to decision making, I'd I'd love to talk about uh, the article in the Harvard Business Review about doubling down on a failing strategy, and and I think the applicability to to lawyers are we can litigate cases for years, literally years, and everyone becomes so invested, uh, time, money, energy, uh, clients, identity, your identity can literally get wrapped into one case. Uh, You studied this concept of how uh, we escalate our commitment the longer we're engaged and the practical realities about why it's so hard for people to let go from a decision-making perspective, a failing strategy. Yeah. So this is um, uh, a paper we had uh, kind of the pleasure. This is with my colleague, uh, Freck, uh, kind of taking all the sort of research that I had done. So he's a professor in strategy. So obviously he studies this uh, and reads about it, writes about it on a regular basis. I came at it from the perspective of uh, decision-making and sort of the errors that we make, not just with everyday decisions, but also fairly consequential decisions that leaders make with with strategy, right? So the the basic bias is this idea of escalation of commitment or, you know, you could think of it as sort of throwing good money after bad, right? So this is the idea whereby you make an initial decision, you get feedback to suggest that actually maybe that first decision is perhaps not the wise one, And instead of cutting your losses and exiting, what you do is you sort of further escalate on it in hopes that it it changes course and somehow somehow you're able to prove to others that your first decision was in fact the right one, right? Uh, A common one you could think of is imagine you're waiting for the bus at the bus stop. The bus is five minutes late and you think, okay, well, I waited five minutes. Let's now wait another five more minutes. 10 minutes passes, it's still not there. And you think, well, I've already waited 10 minutes. Let me wait another 10 minutes. And like you engage in this process and 30 minutes later, you're like, well, I've already now spent half an hour. If I now leave and and call an Uber or hail a taxi, it will prove that my initial decision was the wrong one. I bet the bus is gonna come in the next few seconds. Right? And what you're doing is you are making a decision not prospective in nature, but retrospective. Because you've already spent 30 minutes, which is essentially a sunk cost, you honor that sunk cost and further escalate your commitment. Now, we've all done this. So we invest in a stock. You know, Everyone says we should, you know, it might be Bitcoin, whatever it might be. Things go sour. You don't cut your losses. You think, well, if I could, maybe let me just double down and put another thousand dollars in, and then when it turns around, you know, I bought it at, at its all-time low of one penny. It just uh, next thing you know, uh, I'm going to make a lot of money off this investment. Uh, and they've shown this bias, David, in in almost you know, you could pick a a context, and they've shown this bias. They've shown this with sort of escalation of wars. They've shown this uh, in the NBA, in, in one of my favorite studies, what they find is when you when your draft pick is very high in, you know, in the first round, you've, you've drafted them early, and when they're not performing well on court, instead of cutting them and replacing it with someone who's drafted in the fifth round or 10th round, you escalate your commitment and you give them more court time in hopes that they 
turn it around and prove that your decision to draft them was in fact the right one all along. So what we did was we said, look, this is just doesn't occur here, but it also occurs in strategies where you say, look, we're going to go down this path and we're going to acquire this company or we're going to engage in this joint venture. You keep getting feedback that this perhaps is not the right company or you've made various errors. And instead of cutting those losses, you say, well, we've already spent a year scoping this uh, as an acquisition and you've put more money, more effort, uh, and you know there is a, a abundance of examples where we could sit down and talk about acquisitions and strategies. Well, I think it applies to uh, human resources. I think it applies to business strategy. I think it can apply to litigation strategy. I think it can apply to a lot. And the name of the article is Stop Doubling Down on Your Failing Strategy. And it's in the Harvard Business Review. What we tried to do is not just sort of highlight the bias, but as David, as you read the article, uh, we give sort of very practical tools by which you could de-bias against it or at least protect yourself. So you're not sort of wasting millions or, or just kind of, you know, even as you're thinking about sort of litigation, you'll come up with a strategy of how you'll move forward. And if in the courtroom it starts to sort of not kind of latch on, how do you know to say, hey, let's shift gears and try X? And most people don't because. The one that's most strongly resonated with me are the practical things on the back end. Just when I think of my own bias, uh, my own sunken cost fallacy, I can have you. You gave the advice, protect dissenters. Um, can you explain that? Yeah. So one of the things we we talk about is oftentimes, um, you know, the, the naysayers are arguably the most important aspect of, within the team is to figure out a way to allow them to have a voice because it becomes incredibly difficult in the face of seven senior members saying we have to go. I realize the first million didn't amount to much. If we could only put another two more million, I assure you, this is the right strategy is to uh, to almost sort of separate those individuals. We kind of uh, talk about sort of this post-mortem, pre-mortem, et cetera, which is almost a group that goes off and says like, if this goes wrong, here are the reasons why it would go wrong. And sort of engaging in that perspective taking, and the article sort of delves into sort of the mechanics of doing that, allows you to at least stop, sort of move away from kind of this egocentric view that, that you might find yourself in this tunnel vision uh, and allows you to sort of reformulate that that decision. So in fact, one of the ways um, escalation plays out is in bad loans. So oftentimes, let's say if I'm a banker and I've given you the first million, you're a small business, you go off, it's not going so well, you come back and say, hey, Nero, uh, I'm on my path, It's it's been a bit rough, can you extend another million? I, I, if I could just have that, I'll get that perfect client and the business will take off. Now, you're putting me in this escalation because I've made the decision where I think you are a good person to loan. The evidence or the feedback I'm getting is, ooh, I'm not so sure it was the right decision. Now, the question is, do I cut my losses and say no, knowing full well that you will unlikely to be able to pay back the one million, or do I double down and give you a little bit more in hopes that you prove me right, that my first decision was in fact the right one. And one of the ways that banks could kind of overcome this escalation is to decouple the person who makes the first decision versus the person who makes the second decision. So when you come back next time and ask for more loan, you don't, I don't make that decision, but Bob does. 
And the benefit of Bob making that decision is he's not clouded by the first decision. He is evaluating you in a very prospective nature. David's asking for a million. Here's the business plan. I don't see the merits of this. For me, it's a no. There's no reason for Bob to help justify Nero a year ago that made that decision, right? So you can sort of see how structurally decoupling helps reduce the likelihood that I fall victim to that bias. If you were to recommend uh, right now, the season of history and life we're in, three books, unfiltered, what three books would you recommend? Yikes. Uh, So... Uh, so given sort of the topic that I uh, discussed, you know, from the dilution effect and others, as I said, the intellectual lineage goes back to one Danny Kahneman. So the book I would recommend and I recommend to everyone is a book uh, that's called Thinking Fast and Slow. So this is a book by Danny Kahneman. So he's a gentleman that won the Nobel Prize um, in 2002. This was a book that was published, I believe, in 2012. Uh, it was on FT's number one business book, I think all of 2012, all of 2013, and maybe a majority of 2014. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal book, and it's kind of a tour de force that kind of walks you through all the quirks of our of our brain and sort of why we make those errors. Um, it's, uh, it's a fabulous book. Uh, it's, it's not an easy book to read. It's a Nobel laureate's, uh, 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 you know, uh, attempt at sort of passing on this information to the larger public. But I, again, I think it's, it's worth its weight in gold. Highly, highly, highly recommended. If you were to give advice to uh, new people who are new in business, they're starting in business. They, they don't even realize they're in business. Right now, they're just in professional services. They're just lawyers, but ultimately, they're going to be journeying in business what advice would you give them? I think oftentimes when you sort of start out, you think you just kind of have to sort of really, really focus on, I want to learn everything there is about you know litigation, or I want to learn everything there is to how do I balance sheets, et cetera. I think, uh, you know, if you could just sort of adopt this kind of learning mindset, right? This idea that, you know, that there's far more that you don't know than you do know and consume as as widely as possible as much information. Oftentimes, you know, much of the research shows that it's sort of that diversity of knowledge that oftentimes yields some of the most creative solutions. Um, and, and even in, 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 in areas where you might think there's these structured solutions, uh, I would I would say, you know, read widely uh, and, and consume as much information and, and talk to as many people as possible. It's kind of in some ways the same advice I give my PhD students is oftentimes they're in management organizations or OB and I tell individuals talk to those you know econ PhD students, read articles that you would never read because oftentimes the, the coolest things are at the intersection between two disciplines. Um, and, and that's where kind of creative ideas come in. Those are the ones that kind of transform the way people think. Nero, it has uh, been a treat for me. I, I appreciate the generosity of your time and you saying yes to my invitation. For those people that want to um, read more about you, they can research you on, on Google. You, uh, The London Business School uh, has a link to you and you have a personal website with many of the articles. And uh, also the research is located on there. Very, very thankful for your time. It was a pleasure, David. It was uh, a lot of fun. I can't believe that we've spent almost 90 minutes talking about this. It doesn't feel that way, but 
Uh, it was it was it was a blast.